0: Additionally, in this episode, my friend Lars Doucet joins us as a co-host. Well, Steve, how are you doing this afternoon?
1: I'm doing very well, Will. Uh, Thank you for having me on the podcast.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in?
1: Yeah, sure. So as you can tell from the accent, um, I'm a New Zealander. Uh, After graduating with a degree in economics, I worked in kind of urban issues for five years there, Um, a lot of housing and transportation type stuff. Um, Then I went off traveling the world and sort of ended up in in Singapore working in health and labor economics. And basically um, what's been niggling at me for the last 10 years or so is a frustration with the housing market, which is basically, you know, stuffed everywhere. Um, and uh, just a love of cities and wanting to make them better. Um, And how that's kind of channeled into my career is um, I've eventually settled on the idea that uh, Henry George's, you know, prescriptions for shifting the tax base onto land are um, some of the most important lessons that economists, uh, people involved in housing policy and the entire public can learn. Um, And I'm kind of directing my career uh, along the pathway of trying to convince people that, that that's really what we need to be doing to fix our cities, fix our inequality and solve a lot of social problems as well.
0: Can you talk a little bit about how, you know, I, the current political discourse is, is kind of framed as, as this conflict between capital and and workers, you know, like you, you hear like workers of the world unite, you know, this is kind of this famous socialist tagline, uh, you know, Toma. Piketty writes a lot and I'm sure Butcher just I'm sure I pronounced his name wrong. Piketty. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, he wrote this book, Capital in the Twenty First Century, and it's all about how all uh all of the inequality is driven by these excess returns to capital. Can you talk about how, you know, maybe that that model may be flawed in some ways and, and what land has to do with it?
1: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's absolutely crazy that, um, in basically the entirety of my economics education as an undergrad, um, and in all of the way that that kind of political discourse happens is always flamed around, uh, capital and labor being in competition with each other. And that, you know, when wages go up, profits go down and vice versa. Um, and, uh, what I kind of have discovered as I've, you know, completed this recent master's in spatial economics and and, and learned the sort of George's lessons is that there's this third category of land um, which everybody's just kind of blind to um, and it has you know some really unique features um, w- when we talk about land as Georgists you know we're talking about the physical land and that's what I'm most interested in um, you know as an urban economist um, but it also kind of applies to natural resources um, uh, and also some areas of kind of economic rent where regulations are like really protecting people um, you know deriving what we call economic rent to them because it's not being competed away and um, But to focus on the, the kind of physical land, um, the thing that's really unique about it is that, you know, it's in, um, fixed supply, so you can't really make more of it. Um, you know, yeah, you can dredge up some areas. Um, I'm in the Netherlands at the moment and they're quite good at that, but the locational aspects of land, um, just can't be competed away. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, everybody needs land to survive on. It's, it's literally impossible not to consume land when you're producing and when you're uh, out there socializing and consuming in the world. Um, and what that means is that, you know, we're all paying for land all the time. Uh, all sorts of rents are being just gobbled up by the landowners. Um, they can't be competed away and nobody's talking about it. (laughs) Um, So we can talk about how that plays out in the politics a little bit, but that's kind of the really frustrating thing for me as a, as an urban economist.
2: So speaking of um, these things, we we throw around words and jargon, like rents and stuff, you know, um, economic rent versus, you know, the rent you pay to your landlord. You know, part of your thesis is, is that the, um, you're talking about how we're always paying all these invisible rents all the time. What, what do you specifically mean by that? and can you give some concrete examples?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, I, you know to stick with the area that, that I'm most focused on, um, which is housing, cities and and kind of urban land, um, you know in order to access labor markets, um, or to access, you know, proximity to other people, which is something that we all love. It's why so many of us live in cities. Um, you have to pay for access to those locations. Um, and indeed to the extent that an area has kind of higher or lower amenity, you know, there's greater, you know, value enjoyment that you can get out of a place, you have to pay higher rent. Um, And so when I talk about, you know, land gobbling up so much of the economy, it really is the case that, you know, as society develops, as the centre of cities becomes so much more productive or provides so many more social and, and, you know, consumption opportunities, land prices just go up and up and up. Um, And so all of those kind of benefits of, you know, social progress... um, Flow ultimately into the people, the hands of the people that are owning the land and in the, in the lucky locations, um, and out of the hands of both the workers uh, and the capital, the producers. Um, they both have to pay for those those location
2: rents. Okay, so this rhymes a little bit with the traditional socialist critique, which is that it's. But the socialist critique is that it's capital that's doing the gobbling up. But you're saying that it's land, and that. Um, land is often conflated with capital so how how are they different and how does that work out so when, when land is gobbling up these these amenity values like 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 how does that actually work and how is that different than capital and why should we treat them as separate things
1: um, great so so um... You're right. The socialists are um, obsessed with uh, with capital and its power in our economy. Um, and my position is that they're correct, but they just, um, most of what they're seeing, most of the injustice that they're seeing is land that they call capital. Um, and so the thing that Makes land really unique. There is, um, you know, you can't produce more of it. Like capital that we think about in terms of machines and computers um, that you have to use and recycle back into into greater production in the future. Um, human effort can make more of that. We can take materials, we can process them together, we can make them more valuable. Um, But with land, you know, there just exists this plane of of physical territory. Um, Some of it has, you know, more desirable features and some of it has less. Um, But when, you know, the center of Manhattan is, is suddenly, you know, becoming a really desirable place to be, you can't respond to that by producing a bunch more location in that area, um, and kind of competing the profits away. Um, that can happen with with capital. You know, Apple got really good at producing tablets that we like to use, and uh, and as a result, you see you know Samsung popping up and saying I'm going to do that too, and the profit gets competed down somewhat. But um, but with land, it, you just can't do that, and so the profit sort of margin, the profit margin of land that we call rent, um, just just a absorbs that chunk uh, more and more
2: so going riffing off of that going back to an idea you had talked about earlier where you had said like that the classic capital versus labor or capitalist versus socialist fight is this idea that it's like okay if we want to raise wages we got to take that out of profit and you know the socialists see that as a good thing because you know the business people are evil anyways and don't deserve it. But some well-meaning, you know, more, more capitalist oriented people are like, well, hey, that's our investment in society, right? And businesses take risk and anyone who's run a business knows that it's like, it's easy to go out of business, you know, like risk-taking is difficult. You know, entrepreneurship has a, you know, a, a real cost to it. So capital does re- deserve this return. Um. So how can we get out of that, um, that that dilemma like how does introducing this third thing land like shift the fight between you know so-called capital and 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 labor in terms of in terms of who gets returns like can we basically have a world where we can give a good profit to investment but also have increasing wages Mm. so i i don't take too much of a strong opinion about the capital-labor
1: battle. I mean, it may be a problem, and I'm fine with um, the socialists taking that up once we've dealt with the land problem. But for me, it, you know, land is absorbing value from both the workers, um, from consumers when they when they occupy you know houses and physical locations, and from the producing um, firms. Um, but the thing that makes it really different compared to the the risk taking that capital does is. I don't see the social value being generated by, you know, the clever landowners who buy land in the right location and then profit when it becomes more valuable. You know, when, when somebody does that by, um, you know, buying shares or I- investing, you know, their venture capital in a startup, the risk they're taking has a social value to it, which is that, you know, you give the, your, your hard-earned savings to someone, they put it to work producing something that they think that humans want to enjoy. And- you know, if they're right, everybody else, you know, everybody kind of benefits from that innovation, from that new technology and so on. Um, but the 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 risk taking that landowners like to claim um, is providing value to, to humanity. I, I really don't think it is because the land would have been there regardless. Um, a lot of the time, the risk taking takes the form of, you know, buying a car park and holding onto it for 10 years and then making money out of it. Um, so it's just not a socially useful type of risk taking. Um, and uh, yeah, I think we can solve that. With, um, by placing a price on the ownership of those locations
0: well steve uh i i, I love this thought here and, and like there, there's a lot of unearned gains that, that go to landlords uh things they didn't do they didn't, p- perhaps don't quite deserve a lot of the the rents they get um and, and it has this, these negative effects where uh you know they're sucking up a lot of the workers excess productivity a lot of capitals extra um, profits what's to be done about it what what should we think about what kind of policy things can can interventions can we um, put together that will help alleviate this kind of problem
1: yeah sure so um I think the gold standard in this in this area is is the land value tax um, that that us Georgists like to hammer on about all the time, um, and sometimes we're a little bit perfectionist where we say you know an eighty percent per year land value tax is the only thing that we can do and we have to do it. Um, I think we should slowly you know try and chip away at that and shift more and more of the tax base onto land. Um, you're basically charging each piece of land um, a certain percentage of its value every year. So you're not charging an acre the same in every different location, but the acres in the center of Manhattan um, get charged a a much higher price because they're much more valuable. Um, So yeah, any progress we can make at at kind of increasing the proportion of the tax base that comes from land and reducing the proportion that comes from workers and and firms and um, all of these other kind of harmful sources, the better. Um, But I also am willing to take some flexibility and say, actually, Anything we can do to chip away at the power of kind of of rentier land ownership, Um, uh, anything we can do to kind of redistribute some of the value of location to other members of society, the better. Um, And you can do that with things like community land trusts and public housing and rent control can do that a little bit. Um, And I think, you know, an area that I've spent the last um, nine months or so just kind of constantly thinking about is with land use regulation. Um, And I've really been kind of engaging with the the YIMBY movement, the Yes In My Backyard argument that um, all we need to do is deregulate, uh, uh, you know, land use, uh, allow people to build anything anywhere, um, and that will reduce the power of the landowners. And I kind of went in thinking that. Um, I have a little bit of hesitancy around it, um, and I'd like to kind of talk through some of those, those comments with you.
2: Well, let's do that. Let's, let's talk about Yimbyism. First of all, define Yimbyism, you know, kind of formally for our audience and what its goals are. And then just briefly, um, its relationship and, you know, to Georgism and, and, and what you think about them. Mm -hmm. So
1: most of the Western world, uh, in, in almost every city, um, has this sort of comprehensive and onerous system of land use regulation, which basically says on every given parcel of land in that city, here are the uses that you're allowed to put it to. um, And here are kind of the maximum densities that you can have on it. So um, I think you you had uh, Nolan Gray on your podcast a month or two back. um, and, And he was really, you know, pointing out that We have all these regulations you know the us is particularly bad for this but new zealand is very much the same where um you know on a piece of land you can't build within a couple of meters of the boundary Um, you can't cover more than a certain area of the ground with with built uh, floor space you can only build a certain height um, uh, maximum density, maximum floor area. Um, you might have to have a car park or a certain type of garage. Um, and also you can only use it in certain ways. So you can't have uh, you know, any kind of retail or commercial activity in a lot of suburbs in the US. Um, these kind of controls over land use. And the Yimbies, yes in my backyard, are basically a response to the NIMBYs who use those regulations to uh, stop people from building. Um, the Yimbies say- And
2: NIMBY is no in my backyard? Not in my backyard.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the Yumbies are saying, you know, let's just slice a bunch of that regulation away, um, allow landowners to compete in what they provide on different locations. Um, and that competition will, you know, bring down housing costs, make our cities a lot more thriving. Um, and I think a lot of them think that it will also, you know, substantially erode the, the power of land that I've been
2: talking about. So the YIMBYs, basically, their pitch is that if we abolish or at least strongly reform zoning, municipal zoning, that says it's like, okay, this is a residential district. It's a single-family bedroom suburb, and it always will be. And, you know, we're going to bring down the wrath of God on you if you try to build a duplex or a triplex in this neighborhood. Um, If we get rid of that and just let people build what they want, because zoning is effectively really heavy-handed central planning, if we just let the free market decide what gets built, um, things are going to be better. That that's kind of the pitch of eumbeism, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And um,
1: a lot of the time, it's it's kind of framed in these very black and white kind of terms. I, I get really triggered by the kind of "it's just supply and demand, bro." Like it's econ one hundred and one, bro. Um, kind of perspectives where you know all we have to do is just cut the regulations. You know tons and tons of stuff will get built prices will plummet and uh, our cities will be will be fixed Um, I am a Yimby. I I really like the idea of deregulating But I think that the argument is often really over oversimplified and there's a lot more complexity going on in terms of how land markets
2: work Okay, and so what are the Yimby's missing and what what do they need to have a a complete balanced land policy breakfast? Yeah, okay, so um,
1: I'll frame it in two ways. So the first way is I just got really stuck into the the economic literature on this topic um, and was a little frustrated by the evidence is really not that clear that, you know, cut regulation prices of housing go down. Um, There's a really a lot of correlations between it. You know, cities that have stricter land use regulation tend to have higher prices, um, tend to have uh, 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 less elastic supply of, of, of houses. So when prices change, the supply um, shifts, uh, uh, you know, less in the more regulated places. Um, but not a lot of those studies do a very good job of kind of proving causality. Um, and it could very well be the case that, you know, what we actually have is places that are higher value. Um, the wealthier people in those places are just better at lobbying government to kind of protect their way of life, protect their city. And and that that sort of reverse causal perspective, uh, you know, hasn't really comprehensively been, been proven for my taste. Um, that is not the main part of my criticism, though. Uh, and it's very much just like a technical, you know, economists, uh, you know, being picky about causality um, uh, criticism. My main one is actually, um, I think that, land use regulation can really shift the the distribution of land prices, um, but I'm not convinced that it can drastically reduce them. Um, and I think to get into it, it requires talking a little bit about the kind of three pathways that I think land use regulation affects uh, land prices and house prices, uh, and then talking about how that feeds into the Yimby sort of perspectives on this. Is it okay if I step you through them?
2: Yeah, yeah, let's, let's go through that. So by the way land policy affects land prices, you mean things like if I zone this area for single family homes, here's the effect that it has on prices and, and a bunch of other things like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah let, let, let's get into it. Yeah. So the there's this very sort of um,
1: intuitive model that urban economists use um, to sort of plot out the, the land price gradient. Um, and so what we're saying is that, you know, in cities, we know that land prices are really high in the city centre and that they decline the further out that you move towards the periphery of the city. And sort of at the point where those prices hit the price of, um, of uh, agricultural land, that's the edge of your city. Um, and the models that economists, urban economists use to explain this um, basically say the reason for that is the transportation costs, right? So I can live in the city center and pay $0 for my commute because I'm right by my job, uh, or I can live on the fringe of the city and pay a lot of time and, and, and money, um, to get to work and back every day. And so the difference between the price of a house in the center and the price of a house on the edge of the city is basically the sort of annualized value of that transportation cost. Um, the, the landowner in the city center is able to, to, to sort of demand of tenants or, or, of um, yeah, tenants of their properties because, um, yeah, because that that's the benefit of that location. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So just to like clarify there, what you're saying is that if it costs me, I don't know, I'm making up a number, um, like gas is so expensive now, but like if it costs me, um, I don't know, a thousand dollars, 2000, yeah how, how, how yeah $2000 in gas a year mm-hmm. to commute to my job like i don't know like over whatever distance yep Th- that basically says that it's like i'm saving $2000 in rent and um i'm paying it in $2000 in gas mm-hmm. and so like the distance i'm traveling out is like this smoothly like 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 smoothly interpolated function of how much more i have to pay in gas is is like the 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 amount my my rental price increases or decreases. Is that essentially what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly
1: right. And we have this concept of of, um, spatial equilibrium, which is basically, you know, now we are talking a little bit about competition where, um, uh, you know, all of the benefits of one location compared to another one um, get absorbed up into the difference in, in the price of accessing land in that location compared to the other. Because if, if the difference wasn't uh, absorbed into that price, well, you would just take the location that offers you, you know, more amenity, more, you know, access to jobs, access to social life, etc. cetera, um, but for a cheaper relative price. Um, and as people do those movements, um, the spatial sort of arbitrage between locations means that it, all of those differences in, in amenity um, get reflected in the price of, of, of access to land, um, and that is what explains, uh, you know, the difference in, in, in land prices in different parts of, of cities, different parts of the country.
0: I'm curious, um, Steve. So, so how does how does this interplay between, um, you know, land rents and a, a zoning, you know, play out in, in the real world? So, so you know. It, I, we had Cameron Murray on the pod a while back. Um, he had this claim that that zoning zoning, um, res- you know, rolling back zoning restrictions would actually have like no effect at all on, um, housing prices, which doesn't quite make sense to me at some level. I, I think it definitely like, you know, easing zoning restrictions would definitely help, uh, increase density and things like this. And, and, and on the margin would definitely be helpful. Um, but, but can you talk about like how these two kind of, kind of interact with each other? Like, and how, 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 um, loosened zoning relations, uh, zoning restrictions could could relate to price. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I I really want to talk about Cameron's work because I think he has a lot of of good things to say. Um, Let's talk about the three pathways first, because the third pathway is kind of the one where you can imagine all of the prices dropping down. So um, there are three ways that land use regulation can affect the value of land in a given location. And I call these the amenity effect, the profit effect, and the scarcity effect. So the amenity effect is basically what we were just talking about, which is that land use regulations can affect how desirable or undesirable a location is. Um, and as it does that, it will you know raise or lower land rents in that location. Um, this is like the historic justification for zoning, right? Is, oh, there's gonna to be too much crowding, too much noise, you'll be shading the neighbor's properties, um, and all of these kind of negative externalities need to be regulated, and if we regulate them well, um, we'll make our, our our cities much more desirable, and actually, land rents will be higher, right? Because you've created more amenity in that location um, compared to somewhere else. Um, I'm pretty skeptical about that argument now because I actually think that density has so many benefits um, that 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 you know reducing density is is creating more harm than good. Um, so we can mostly set that one to the side. Um, The second one, the profit effect is what I have focused on in my thesis. Um, And this is the idea that, you know, if you're, if you own really central land in a city that is tightly regulated and basically says, you know, look, on this location, you can just build like three row houses um, and they can only be three stories high. But, you know, in an open competitive market, you'd love to build a 12 story apartment building. Um, That regulation that tells you what you can't build kills your profitability. On that location, right? It kills what you're allowed to build as the landowner. And so when you go to sell the property, the land to somebody, um, they're going to say, you know, I'm really not willing to pay that much for it. Um, and so the flip side of this that I studied in my thesis is that when you drastically deregulate, you know, certain parts of, of, of a city, um, the landowners on all of that you know, deregulated land get an instant windfall. Um, they absolutely love it. Cameron talks about this a lot. Um, uh, and actually there's a lot of kind of sneaky land banking that people do where they buy land, they lobby uh, their municipality for a deregulation of their site and they pocket the differences. And often they don't actually build the house. Um, they, you know, build the houses. Um, once the deregulations happen, they just sell it on and, uh, and, and there's no more supply. Um, and this explains. Yeah, you know, that's what I found. You know, Auckland did this big deregulation in 2016, um, and I looked at those sites that had their land use regulations cut, and observed that you know, for the, the owner of like a typical property um, in Auckland, um, which is you know a fairly sprawling city um, similar to a lot of American ones, um, the 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 owner of that sort of typical property that was upzoned to allow like five stories instead of just a single family home home uh, pocketed. In the order of about a hundred thousand US dollars, um, uh, yeah, on a on a, a typical property, um, so that, that was lovely for them. Uh, but the the real question is the third effect, which I call the scarcity effect, and this is the one that the kind of Yimbis are are actually relying on with their arguments, which is that um, you know because we have strict zoning across the whole city. Um, uh, housing is made really, really scarce, consumers are therefore, you know, desperate to afford a house and they pay much more out of pocket, you know, to get access to housing. And that basically, you know, I talked about this this um, gradient inside the city going to the city centre before, the scarcity effect is the idea that, that that tight regulation like pushes all of that curve upwards and generates this big sort of red rectangle of of, of value that is kind of expanding the extractive power of the landowners in the city. Um, And, you know, the extent to which that is possible depends a lot on the existence of alternative locations that you're willing to move to when regulation forces you out of the city um, so you know if you think about the American case what's happened with the tight regulation of coastal cities in California you know Los Angeles and, and San Francisco specifically is a lot of um, Californians have fled um, and they've fled to, to places like Houston and Colorado um, you know where where a little bit more housing can be built um, uh, because they're just sort of not not able to be in California anymore. The housing you know, that they would like to consume is not able to be built. And because they're able to do that, to move to an alternative location, um, it kind of weakens the the size of that scarcity effect because the landowner's as we said right at the start, all they can charge is the difference between their location and the other alternatives. And because there's lots of those alternatives available, um, I think that the extent of that scarcity chunk is kind of overstated. I do think it exists. I do think that massive deregulating would, you know, would slow the rise of land rents or, or maybe reduce them if it was a really, really big one. But I think UMB kind of overstated because they don't account for the fact that people are always, you know, engaging in this arbitrage between locations.
2: Okay. So that was, that was a lot. Let me, let me summarize and make sure I understand. So you're saying that there's these three effects that is basically account for the relationship between zoning and land values. And the three effects that land policy has on land values is, is first is the amenity effect which is, um, you know, the whole, the whole um, approach to your historical justification for zoning, you know, to manage your externalities and stuff. And so that if you successfully use land policy to make an area a better place, somehow that's supposed to raise land values. Um, but it, you're saying it can also destroy land values by, you know, preventing good things like density, you know? Okay. So that's the amenity effect. Make the place better or worse. Uh, then the second is the profit effect, which is where zoning can reduce the profitability of parcels by keeping people from building as much as they'd like, right? It's mm-hmm. like, okay, I've got some prime location here, but I'm not allowed to do the profitable thing. So I have less profit, which creates these interesting incentives, you know, for speculation, like hold this pol- hold this land for 10 years till they upzone it. And now it's, I can build apartments on it. So I can sell it to someone who wants to build apartments. So I've done nothing with it. I've just held it out of use for 10 years. Mm-hmm. But because of the depressed effect of the zoning, that produced my opportunity once I got the new zoning in. Um, and then there's the scarcity effect you're talking about where um, zoning by not allowing us to build enough housing causes you know, the whole, well, it's just supply and demand bro argument. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so those are the three effects you're talking about and the, and the effects that they have on, 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 on um, land prices, right?
1: Yep, that's really
2: well put. And um, an important thing
1: to think about is that the, the amenity and the profit effects are actually a good thing. We would want to maximize land value through those effects because what they're doing is, is making the land much more valuable, much more desirable, and much more productive, right? So it's actually good to maximize land value with those two effects. Um, you know, although as we'll talk about, it would be ideal if that value was going to everybody and not just the landowners. Um, but the scarcity effect, uh, you know, to the extent that it exists, that one is very, very bad, and we shouldn't want want that to be happening because all it's doing is basically um, increasing the power of of landowners in the re- regulated city um, and allowing them to extract more from the workers and the um, and the and the firms. Um, then would be efficient, um, and and essentially kind of slowing the the productivity of the whole city um, through that pathway.
2: Okay, so what I would like to hear now is okay. So what is the kind of what 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 is what is missing from the Yimbyist, um position that that you think will address the kind of shortcomings of maybe not the shortcomings of Yimbyism, but the incompleteness of it. Yeah, so I um, am a YIMBY. I know
1: I've just sat here for 20 minutes and told you about why the YIMBYs are are, uh, are horrible and wrong. Um, and I differ with Cameron Murray on this is that I, I still would like to see our cities upzoned um, drastically. Um, but I I think that the argument should be made much, much more um, on, on other aspects of the argument. I don't think we should make these really sweeping claims about house prices being fixed. Um, uh, And I think that instead our claims should be centred on um, creating better cities, um, making them into these kind of production and consumption powerhouses, um, cl- you know, tackling climate change is a big one. Easing, uh, you know, a lot of racial exclusionary policies um, in, in the US, um, and then there's kind of a, a political strategy argument around um, creating more households who have kind of less of their entire net worth just locked up in in preserving land value. So, um, yeah, we can kind of talk through some of those if, if you'd like.
2: Yeah, well, let's just cash it out. What should we do? Right? The Yimby's yeah. want us to upzone all the land or mm-hmm. even abolish zoning or mm-hmm. or at least reform it, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's pretty clear what they want. What do you think we should do? It seems like you want a yes and like, yeah, let's exactly. do the Yimby stuff. But then what's the and? Yeah. Yeah. I um,
1: I sometimes kind of rant about this on Twitter, where I, I feel like we're often arguing about which urban policy is the best. And um, most of them, we should just, you know, we should just do all of them um, all the time. So from a pure economic efficiency perspective, if I was forgetting, you know, that much about equity um, and kind of the experience of, of displacement for tenants and things, if we were just going for you know, maximizing the efficiency of our cities. What we would do is we would drastically deregulate land use. You know, I think I mentioned like, you know, height limits, density limits, um, setbacks, minimum floor coverage. Most of those we would just slice away, minimum parking gone. All of that should go um, because I think that you know landowners um, deciding what to do with their land based on the demands of their you know potential customers does lead to much better decisions about land use, and we should slice all of that away. Um, but we need to make sure that the value that that creates for society uh, doesn't just go into the hands of the people who happen to own the land when we do the upzoning. Um, so you know. I would support dereg- you know the big YIMBY if it was, you know, the only thing on offer, but it's so much, so much better if it comes with a system of land value capture. And ideally that would be a land value tax, but there are other pathways towards it, which is to sort of um, have windfall gains taxes, which is where when someone gets upzoned, zoned, um, the municipality takes a lot of the value that that's created for the landowner because, you know, it's just a windfall profit. Um, so, yeah, it's a yes, we should do YIMBY but we should also really be be capturing land values. And I'm begging the Yumbies out there to be Georgists and integrate it into your YIMBY movement. Um, And then I've kind of brushed over it, but there are some other kind of aspects of um, equity and making sure that that process isn't overtly harmful to a lot of people, um, especially sort of tenants um, in the process. And and we should probably have a sympathetic conversation about that at some point as well.
0: Steve I, I I'm really curious so you, you've said some interesting things um, about the windfall effect of zoning um, m- my question here is if there is this windfall effect of uh, you know, of uh, you know, getting rid of, rid of zoning restrictions to you know uh, land plots in a city, why are there nimbies? Like if there's a hundred thousand, you know, if so if you own a piece of property, there is this big windfall effect. Do people just like really, really value keeping their neighborhood the same to the tune of like hundreds of thousands of dollars? Or is there something else going on there? So
1: I view it as being two main factors. Um The first is, Yes, absolutely, a financial one, um, which is essentially, you know, the the West has made the main route towards retirement savings, um, buying property as soon as possible and owning it while it grows in value, and then sort of using that as your retirement nest egg. Um, most of the middle class in the US are barely invested in um, in the stock market, aside from sort of their 401ks and things. Um, And the strategic play that homeowners make is that they um, are willing to accept tighter regulation of their property in the process of getting stricter regulation for all of the other properties in the city as well. Um, so if I'm a homeowner, my goal is to ha- be allowed to build whatever the hell I want, but for nobody else to be able to build anything, right? That's great. That's really, really great. Um, and so I think what happens is that they um, s- they kind of intuitively get that sense that it's better, you know, what, to what, show- why, up, Oh, sorry, go on, Yeah. Real
2: quick, economically, why is that great, quote unquote? Mm. Like, why why is it great for me to build but nobody else?
1: Yeah, if if there are um, sort of competing housing supply in the neighborhood, um, it it can make it harder for you to, you know, get a good price for your property. Um, And, uh, you know, likewise, we did talk about some of the negative effects of of shading and, um, you know, congestion. A lot of them, I think, are really wedded to uh, their access to their on-street parking and not wanting the roads to be clogged as well. Um, uh, so it's that, you know, I don't want the neighbouring properties to throw that many more people in there um, that will be sort of essentially competing with with my property. Um, so I think that there is that financial part happening there. Um, uh, but I think that there is also indeed a quite a strong... Um, intuitive connection to the way that one's neighborhood is at the very moment. Um, at the moment you know um, and not wanting uh, to see it change drastically there's some classism um, and some racism as well of you know if we allow um, denser types of housing the type of people that will be in those are lower income um, and darker skinned and uh, you know in the case of the US at least you know there's this strong uh, reaction to that from your kind of Uh, white homeowner, especially in the suburbs, you know, where we've had white flight and things like that in the past. So I think it's a little bit of finance and a little
2: bit of kind of cultural attachment to place. One question I sort of have is one of the arguments also with regards to amenity for zoning is if you ever talk about zoning reform, people always bring up, oh, so you want to be able to build a nuclear power plant right next door, or, oh, you want to be able to build a slaughterhouse in my neighborhood. Um, I mean, I'm just going to, just flag my own opinion here. I mean, that seems to me like a bad faith argument because slaughterhouses and nuclear power plants and industrial coal plants in residential neighborhoods have nothing to do with density or height limits or setbacks, which is mostly what municipal zoning goes for, right? Aren't there Mm -hmm. these things called nuisance laws, which are entirely parallel to zoning that deal with like building glue factories in the middle of a sleepy suburb? Yeah, that's exactly right. And this
1: is where the YIMBYs um, are bang on the money. And, and Nolan Gray is just terrific with this in, in his book, Arbitrary Lines, where um, we, we do need to regulate some of those externalities, um, but it's just so much more efficient to do it with you know, direct regulation of those nuisances rather than sort of trying to circle our way around to it by controlling density. Um, so uh, if we're worried about noise, Um, We can put noise ordinances in place um, and we can, you know, talk to people in the area about, you know, what is a suitable type of noise and, and what isn't. I mean, and this is this is it's not even done very well with zoning because, you know, if you live in the suburbs, think how often you get woken up at eight AM on your Saturday morning sleep in by the neighbour with their you know their lawnmower, um, or the neighbours you know teenagers, kids having a very loud party. Like um, we can deal with these things by you know calling the 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 noise um, noise control or whatever you guys call it over there. Um, and directly regulating the externalities there. Um, and uh, I, think, I think Nolan also talks a little bit about having, you know, mechanisms of, of arbitrage in place where, um, say, you know, someone wants to open a bar in the neighbourhood, um, they might be able to sort of to um, buy the right to that activity from the neighbours, um, you know, and have some kind of sort of tradable uh, permits for some of those activities as well. But I, I'm, I'm not as informed
2: on, those, uh, on the mechanisms of those. One thing I would like to talk about, you know, talking a little bit more about practical stuff, like, okay, let's say you have a place with an active EMB movement. And let's say you succeed in convincing them that they need Georgism as well, because they're not going to be able to, like, solve the housing crisis and all the other things they want to do just by upzoning. They also need to have Georgist policies to make sure that, you know these windfall gains from upzoning don't just get privately captured and just create these like malincentive effects to therefore go out and land speculate. Let, let, let's say you, you, you build a coalition. That's like, yes, let's do this. What in your mind is a practical policy proposal that works within the existing system to, to get us there, you know, with, with the minimal revolution necessary.
1: It's, it's a great question. I am, um my instinct is to go to the land value tax but i think i should tap the brakes on that because i think that's a very difficult political battle um and so they should be fighting it and and it's a really really important part of of um of actually empowering YIMBY and making it so much more successful. And I'd like to talk about how it does that. But I think if we were talking, you know, brass tacks, um, uh, practical approach, I think that the windfall capture policy that um, I think Cameron probably talked to you about um, and and that Australia has had some success with is actually the better pairing with upzoning. Um, So basically what you do is, you know, you do say, to the public, that we're going to do this upzoning because our cities need to be made so much more, you know, efficient, and we need to allow people to live in the locations they want to. But in order to prevent that from being just a, a massive, you know, handout to land bankers, um, we pair it with a tax. Um, that captures the uplift in the value of those properties as a result of the of the change in zoning. Um, so this is kind of called collectively called um, uh, value capture or value uplift capture. Um, it's being done a little bit with you know public investment in um, transit and things as well, where you know the value of of properties near the train stations um, gets raised by the access to the transit, and those owners um, also have to sort of pay. Um, pay society, compensate society for that privilege. So by pairing upzoning with a windfall capture, it's a really good way of, of saying, you know, look, we Yumbies are not just, you know, tools of land speculators. Um, uh, we really want our cities to be better. Um, and we want the funding of our cities to come from the value that we're creating with our upzoning and the pairing of of, of the upzoning with the windfall capture um, is a really really like sort of nice way of doing that
2: and getting some georgist ideas on the table as well. Is that what's been called a land value increment tax? Yeah, same idea. Yep. Okay. Well, so here's another thing. It's like, here's another practical policy proposal that I've mm-hmm. heard. Um, various cities float, such as the city of Detroit and um, others is, is a split rate property tax. Mm-hmm. So instead of going maximum full just overnight, where we're just taxing the land at 100% of its annual rental value, which is not the same as 100% of the value you paid for it, just, you know, the, the, the income it's capable of generating essentially, um, is to instead take the existing property tax regime we have and reform it. Basically allow local municipalities to charge a different percentage or millage, I guess, is that is the term rate on um, either the buildings or on the land and have those be separately, you know, so you could move the building tax down and the land tax up, but still collect the same amount of dollars overall. You're basically just shifting where the tax burden goes. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what the effects of a proposal like that would be and what you think of the practicalities of it in terms of political difficulty. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great
1: one to raise because I actually think that's one of the most politically viable routes to towards sort of a more George's future that we have. Um, the, the best way to sell it is to make it really, really clear that we're not talking about raising property taxes overall. Um, all we want to do is reduce the proportion that comes out of the building and, and raise the proportion that comes just from the land value underneath it. Um, I think it's very saleable to... Uh, property owners, which is desirable because um, it's a big political hill to climb, um, because the people that end up paying that kind of transition um, the most are the people who have been sort of hoarding land for speculative purposes. Often, this is kind of the owners of um, of you know blighted car parking or vacant spaces in the centre of, of thriving cities. Um, uh, you know, often this is in the commercial district where there could be so many more businesses and things or, or apartment buildings, um, and they're just kind of holding on to it and, and and making, you know, like 10x on their return in, in, in 10 years um, in the case of, of uh, Phoenix in one study. Um, uh, and and doing that transition, it raises the overall taxes paid by those property owners, and it tends to reduce the, the tax burden on the vast majority of, of homeowners. That's certainly the case in the studies on, on Detroit. Um, uh, Yeah, so it's kind of a benefit for the the median voter. Um, And then there's this kind of secondary set of effects, which is that, um, yeah, it kind of changes the strategic behavior that people participate in with land. And it encourages much more development of properties, right? Because you're not punishing someone for building. Um, You're punishing them for for holding the land. And uh, they get actually rewarded with more more profit when they uh, build more intensely on their sites. Um, so that's a, a really good route to it, and um, that actually leads really nicely into talking about sort of um, my kind of three main pathways for why Yimby, being a Yimby is not enough, um, and you should also be a Georgist. Um, uh, is it okay if I kind of step you through those those three points? Because this is where I really want the Yimby's in the audience to listen up and, uh, and you know, come to terms with the fact that you've got to be a Georgist too, mate.
0: Yeah, and could you could you also perhaps just uh, tell the Georgists as well after you, uh, why they should be YIMBYs after that? That'd be, that'd be great. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's 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 a really good way of doing it. Yeah, um, let's actually do the Georgists first um, because I've been quite harsh on the YIMBYs, and um, it's important that the Georgists in the crowd listen up. Um, so look. Zoning is really, really harming the, um, both of the the efficiency of our cities and just the kind of lively liveliness of them, right? It's restricting what people are building in the most desirable locations. It's preventing the density that we have in the center of those cities. And we know that density of people leads to what we call agglomeration economies, which is that people closer together, they learn more from each other, they have lower transaction costs between each other, um, they upskill a lot faster, wages are higher as a result of all of this Um, you get more innovation those innovations benefit everybody as the economy grows Um, those more intensive types of housing are much more lenient on the environment Um, when you have shared walls and shorter commutes um, you're consuming a lot less carbon so that's a really essential plank of our um, of our tackling of uh, of climate change Um, it helps with racial and uh, and wealth inequality in general by enabling more people people who have been priced out of these centres, you know, those centres and, and pushed you know, out of San Francisco to some of the sort of second tier cities. Um, uh, it allows them to move into these cities a lot more. And so, you know, there's a lot more kind of upward mobility for people that have been priced out. Um, and uh, and it creates sort of more households who have a, a, a smaller vested interest in preserving land values at all times because they are you know tenants in the city centre they own a condo so they're not quite as like tied to this big you know quarter acre plot in the suburbs um, they're less worried about land as their sort of retirement nest egg so that's the why the Georgists should be Yimbies as well. Um, For why the Yimbis must also be Georgists, um, I think we've got to talk about sort of these three sort of Georgist critiques of Yimbyism that I have. Um, Actually, I've mostly stolen them from Cameron, to be honest with you, Cameron Murray, Um, and and why land value tax or land value capture um, solves that. So we've talked about, you know, the profit effect of of upzoning is just a windfall um, handout to the owners of land in those desirable locations. And this is why Yimbis often get called sort of shills for the developers, because it is the case that, um, you know, that that policy going in place um, hands a lot of, of value to those, uh, they say developers, but I think it's just landowners. Um, and land value tax uh, captures that windfall. It means that whatever the regulation does to the spatial distribution of land rents, um, Those, you know, the landowners that benefit from the regulation are compensating society for it. And by sort of pricing the constant annual holding of that land, we actually turn those developer land bankers back into developers, which is what we want them to be. So that's the first one. Um, The second one, which is that, uh, you know... um, speculation on land value um, can actually really reduce the supply effects of upzoning. So for upzoning to flow through to lower house prices in the Yimby argument, you have to deregulate and that deregulation has to lead to a boost in the supply of, of dwellings. Um, but Cameron Murray shows, and there's there's a couple of other sort of surrounding papers that explore the um, the time decision that, that landowners have to make, Um, basically shows that, you know, even if you upzone this land, it won't necessarily bring forward the point in time when the landowner chooses to develop, right? Because um, they instantly get their windfall gain, and now they're holding onto this desirable land, but they're still looking at, you know, what's happening with house prices, what the neighboring developments are doing, and they're sort of thinking to themselves, like, it might not be optimal to build right now, it might be better for me to wait a few years, wait for land values to rise, Um, you know, then I can build even more in intensively, um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, get even more value out of my land
2: um, in the future point in time. Um, so what and, you're saying is that you want to take the whole, yeah, yeah. so when you talk about like yeah. time preference, that's kind of a nerdy economic jargon. So like to make mm-hmm. that concrete, make sure I understand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When I'm selling a house now, I'm profiting off of two things, people's desire to live in that house, and people's desire to live in that location. Mm-hmm. And the value of that location goes up and down with the housing market. Mm-hmm. You want to take the fluctuation in that value or in the especially if it increases in the long term out of the question. You want to make it so that it's like, hey, you want to provide a house to the market? Provide a house to the market. Not, you know, oh, like, you know, like like how how high can I ride the wave of increasing house prices which is really increasing land prices mm-hmm. before I finally break ground and just build something. Yeah. Like that's that's essentially what you're saying. That's exactly right. And it it
1: it um it just changes their calculus, you know, because they're often just sitting there um thinking like, well, I could develop or I could just sit here and take very very little risk and just wait and and keep earning, you know, you know, these profits from from the, the location value rising. And maybe I'll develop one day, but I, I, you know, I don't really need to. And this is really the driver of um, of, of both vacant lots in, in a lot of thriving city centres, um, but also just kind of what I call speculative underuse, which is where, like, there's locations that are zoned for intensity. Um, uh, you know, they definitely it would be profitable to redevelop it into a, um, a taller building. But I'm just going to wait a little bit longer. I'm going to wait a little bit longer um, Um, and and the sort of outcome of all those decisions is that the upzoning might not necessarily translate into an increase in the net number of dwellings being built. It might change the location. I think it does change the location, Um, and we've got studies on that in Auckland, for example, but it might not boost the actual overall number of houses being supplied each year. And land value tax, by placing a sort of constant price on land ownership um, – punishes that kind of speculative delay and forces landowners to actually develop their properties for the most efficient use um, as soon as possible.
2: And that benefits all of us. Specifically because whatever increase in land price I'm gonna get is gonna be taxed away. So yeah, it's, it's flattening that.
1: It is flattening that kind of pattern over time but it's also just placing a a, a full it's called, we call it the full opportunity cost basically the full price of that land in terms of what it could be providing to to society each year has to be paid by the landowner
2: whereas currently they they pay a, just a time a minuscule proportion it, of that in and it's sort taxes. of like internalizing that externality right yeah, exactly it's like it's like if i'm um you know, to, to analogize it, like if I'm in if I'm in, you know, a nursery school and I'm a kid and there's ten toys and I grab the cool toy and I'm not even playing with it, every other child is suffering the opportunity cost of not being able to play with the cool toy mm-hmm. and I'm not even necessarily realizing the benefit of it. Right? Yeah. That's what you're talking about. So, like with with the land price, it's like I am sitting on this property, people right now, over the ten years I'm holding it, could have been providing society with whatever benefit could be realized there and Mm -hmm. I am not paying that cost. I'm not paying that opportunity cost I'm inflicting on society by just holding it and just owning it because I know the price is gonna go up. Yeah, exactly.
1: And um, to return to sort of what we said at the start, in your toy example, if people engage in that pattern of behavior with, with capital, things that have been produced like toys, um, well, the toy is depreciating over time, which is you know, one of the ways that you don't wanna just hold it out of use, um, but also someone else can make more toys. Um, and so the child that's you know feeling sad because they don't have access to a toy, well, they can take their pocket money and they can, they can buy a new one and someone is gonna be like, okay, I'll, I'll make a new toy for you. But with land, that can't happen, right? The desirable land in these city centers that could be used for this, you know, absolute powerhouse of production and consumption that we have in our cities. Nobody can sort of create more um, in, in, in in a result of it being used that way. So that speculative holding of land out of use makes us all materially poorer for the most valuable natural resource that we have. You know, which is that we have to use this land to
2: right. Yeah. And, and depreciation is a good point because it's like in the toy example, it's like I better play with this toy before. It like gets broken or worn out. Like while well, while well, the getting's good, I better eat this fruit while it's still ripe, you know. Um, but no such pressure exists like that for land. So that, that's, that's yeah. really interesting.
1: Exactly. And it's almost the opposite, right? Cause it just, it just goes up as, as, uh, you know, as GDP grows and society becomes more prosperous, it's, it, it tends to trend yeah. upwards.
2: Yeah. So like, this is the classic economic problem of deflationary assets, like the whole babysitters co-op model. We won't, we won't go off on that tangent sure. where like yeah. everyone just hoards the thing because they're all just waiting for it to go up. And so economic productivity goes down. Um, so let's talk about, um, some other things like. Um, so we, we, we've made the case for why Yimbies should be Georgists and why Georgists should be YIMBYs. Um, we've talked about, like, the practical policies we can do about it. Um, so one of the things is there's also the whole talking about um, just the, the things that surround the housing crisis discourse, like um, public housing. You sometimes have people who call themselves Fimbies, you know, public mm-hmm. housing in my backyard, and they're like, okay, well... I oppose this and such housing project because it needs to have more affordable housing and affordable housing, like trademark means like rent controlled in practice. Right. So can you talk a little bit about the whole like push for affordable housing, you know, which arguments are made in good faith and which ones are made in bad faith and how that slots into this whole, this whole, you know, pie. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. um, This is a, a near and dear uh, issue for me because I, I get really frustrated with kind of the left urbanist movement because I feel like they should be massive allies of both Yimby um, and Georgism. Um, uh, but so often we sort of seem to be at odds and arguing with each other. And, um, you know, instead of going after the, the rentier landowners, there's a little squabbling about the best Um, policy for fixing our cities so we talked about yes and Um, my perspective with a lot of these policies is that it's yes and so to go with the FIMBYs the public housing in my backyard um, I really like public housing Um, uh, I think that there are some you know in the YIMBY movement who really just want private supply all the time but I think public housing has a couple of really useful roles to play Um, the the first is that uh, in you know, in a in a private marketplace of of of, of housing supply, um, there's this really strong cyclical pattern of supply, which is that you know when prices are going up during our you know boom kind of periods, uh, everybody sort of rushes to to supply houses to the market to you know sell them at the top of that peak. Um, but when we you know have a big crash like we did in the GFC and and like I think we're due for in a couple of years again um that construction just collapses right prices are declining um you know a lot of developers are like oh you know let's let's not do this right now we don't want to be selling at the dip um and just construction just gets paired right back and so i think that public housing can do a really good job of coming in in those downturns, um, picking up a lot of the sort of loose um, capacity for for construction, um, you know, the builders and the architects and the, you know, even some of the developers, um, and, and put those to work building public housing. So there's a really useful counter-cyclical approach for public housing um, that can ensure that we keep getting housing supply, you know, in our cities. Um, and then the second side of it is um, it's, A really important mechanism for ensuring that we don't just allow our cities to like completely sort themselves so that the wealthiest people are all in the most desirable locations and the poorest people are all in the less desirable locations. So it's kind of an inequality and an equity side Um, by providing public housing with, you know. All, or I prefer, sort of part of it to be offered at subsidised rates to people, you know, below certain levels of income. Um, we can ensure that our neighbourhoods have a, a mix of people from the socioeconomic spectrum, which is great for kind of building um, connections across the class divide and, and enabling upward mobility. Um, it's a useful tool for preventing people from getting displaced from their neighbourhoods when you know developers start going crazy and pushing people out and redeveloping public housing. Can ensure that there, you know, is affordable housing in those neighborhoods for people that have a really strong connection to the place. Um, And it also actually is a really good mechanism for capturing land value, location value, and redistributing it to um, other parts of the income spectrum. Um, And I think Georgia should appreciate that value of public housing as well. Um, So it's a yes and private supply, good, public housing supply, also really good. And I really don't like it when people use their preference for one or the other as an argument against the other one, Um, because I think that is just really wasted effort that we could all use, um, you know, spend
2: supporting each other. Okay, so let's talk about gentrification, the G word, you know, this Mm -hmm. is something that um, it it touches on issues of race and everything. Um, This can be like a really thorny thing, because it's like, I mean, let me just put it bluntly, like, when white people move out of an area, it's called white flight, and then when they move into an area, it's called gentrification. But then at the same time, it really sucks if you've lived in a neighborhood um, for a long time, and you're a racial minority or you're poor or you know, in any way, like, underrepresented, and you have your own little neighborhood, and a bunch of rich yuppies come in, they bid up the prices of all the housing, and now the place you've had you've lived in for 20 years, like, you're priced out of your own place, and you got to go somewhere else. That's probably worse than where you were before. And that feels bad, man. So like, I, I get like both kind of understandings of this, but it also like sometimes seems to perversely cash out to, we should not improve poor minority neighborhoods mm-hmm. because that's bad and that's violence. And how do you, how do you cut that Gordian knot? You know, how do you, how do you yeah. solve gentrification?
1: Yeah. It's, it's a really difficult piece of discourse to have, um, I think everybody has, well, most people have quite good intentions, but um, it it plays out in some really awful ways. So to go back to basics in terms of spatial equilibrium, um, unfortunately, if you are allocating land using a market, any time you improve an area, relative to other locations, you will see the price of rents in that area rise. Um, so if you are really wedded to anti-gentrification efforts, that is going to mean that you essentially have to oppose anything that can ever improve um, you know, the desirability of the neighborhoods where low-income or minorities live. Um, and I think that's an untenable uh, approach because while it might look like you're you know doing good by keeping the white uh, white collar um, work, you know, tech workers out of these low-income neighborhoods. Um, it also extends sometimes into arguments that you know we shouldn't invest in transit in these places, um, you know. Or I mean, I haven't seen this, but it can even go to the point of anything that kind of reduces crime or cleans up those neighborhoods. You know, gets rid of litter or whatever. Also shows up in in in, uh, in higher land rents. Um, so I don't think that we can take this approach, you know, of we can't ever improve the neighborhoods where low-income folk uh, live. Yeah, you want to say something?
2: Yeah, because that, that also that also seems to imply that like the root issue is the rising land rents, right? The rising house prices, the the amenity effect that you got into, mm-hmm. right? You know, you increase yeah, the amenity exactly. of the neighborhood, people are yep. willing to pay more for it. And then on the topic of market things, it's like I'm a little skeptical that you can allocate housing without a market. I think if you try to go with non-market solutions, you wind up with hidden market solutions. Like, in the Soviet era, you know, housing was allocated effectively by the state, and so it was like, okay, there wasn't a formal free market, but there was a black market, you know, Mm -hmm. of connections and sly deals and stuff, and it's like, oh, if you're out with the current political insiders, like, well, maybe you don't get to get a good apartment. That just increases the non-monetary costs. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, And so, like, the good apartment, like, had a higher cost in terms of connections and favors and, um, and and distance to you know the people who make those allocation decisions. Um, yeah. But so like it seems like the root cause is the rising land rents and you know these these kind of so so is your position that solving those root causes through you know your proposals for your Yimby Georgist synthesis. Um, we'll get at those root issues so that we can improve, you know, low income neighborhoods without committing them to, you know, ever rising rents that are going to push their own residents out. Or is there more to the picture?
1: Yeah. Um, this is, this is a great topic. I haven't sort of formalized my thoughts on this much yet. Um, but I, I often go to war with the lefties on, on Twitter, um, uh, trying to sort of explain my perspective on it. I think that we could actually get a Yimby georgist, leftist synthesis going. Um, And and here's some of the ways that I think we can get towards that. So um, I think that the lefties are coming from a really good place in terms of their concern about um, people being priced out of their neighborhoods. I I think that that's well-intentioned, some of them. Um, uh, But the solutions that they tend to go towards are you know are either um they try and look for mechanisms where we sort of won't have market-based land rents anymore right let's not allocate location using a market um let's instead have you know fully public housing where we democratically decide on who gets to live where um and, uh, you know, we might use, I don't know, you know, means testing or something like that to decide on on exactly who goes where. Um, that's one approach. And then the other approach I've seen is to sort of abolish the idea of there being locations that are better than other locations so it's kind of like well why do, why is it that the city center is the is the best place we should make sure that everywhere has great infrastructure um, you know ha- has street beautification efforts has access to jobs um, you know has walkable neighborhoods that you know let's make everywhere the same and that way there won't be these land rents kind of sorting locations and I think neither of those actually work um, like you said I think if you abolish market rents and you try and do it another way. I think it's just really, really hard to do just doing, you know, just voting on every location decision of every person I think is not viable. And even if you are voting, you have the problem of like locals voting against in their interests and against the interests of other people. Um, yeah, and people paying
2: people to vote. Right. I mean, yeah, it feels like trying yeah. to abolish gravity. It's yeah, like, exactly. I'm oppressed by gravity every day. That I'm gaining weight, you know, but it's like I have to live with that fact rather than try try to like, yeah,
1: yeah. And if you um if you are completely sort of abolishing um land rents as the way of allocating people, so you know a house costs about the same in different places, um you're just going to get massive. Amounts of demand to live in places with shorter commutes, um, and, and you know, so you, you have everybody basically saying, "Yeah, I would love to live in a you know two-bedroom apartment in the center of Manhattan um, uh, for the you know the established rent that the government offers to everybody." Um, and then, you know, you have to just build like infinitely into the sky to try and meet that. And I think that the costs of building like that kind of density, um,
2: are often sort of not worth it from a social perspective. Um, Well, that's interesting. Yeah. A really quick segue mm. is to the question of density. So I've heard this theory that, um, some people oppose Yimbyism because it's like what you just and oppose Georgism where they're like, okay, what well, you, you just want to pave the earth. You just want to build skyscrapers everywhere. And I've heard that actually having buildings that are too massively tall is actually itself a form of sprawl that is caused by artificial scare, like artificially increased scarcity in 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 land and ability to develop land. Um, so I was wondering if you could if you could talk about that.
1: Yeah, um, the I think the way that that shows up um, is you get a lot of very thin, but very, very tall um, buildings um, in, in a lot of places. I think Manhattan has this problem with a lot of kind of luxury apartments. Um, and I think that's usually a product of land use regulation, right, which basically like it's it's preventing a lot of stuff from being built in, in other locations. And then on a specific site, it says, you know, look, you, you're only allowed to have a floor area ratio of, of like, let's say six, and you can only cover um, a third of the land with with paved surface. And so the only solution to that kind of regulation to sort of use the the, the plot, um, uh, you know, to get the profit that you want out of the plot is to just build this like really skinny building and then throw it up as tall as you possibly can before you hit the um the floor area ratio limits. So I, I do think that, um, you know, if we allowed a lot more of what people want in different locations and we were using a land tax to sort of price um, optimal development, I think we would see a much smoother gradient of, of type of dwelling. And I think we'd get a lot more of kind of um, the medium density, you know, three to seven kind of story, um, uh, in a lot of cases, walk up apartments that we see and, re- and people really love in a lot of Europe. I'm living in one right now.
2: So I I imagine it is kind of like if you take a glob of Play-Doh and you say that the volume of that Play-Doh is the demand for housing in an area, right? And then you take a plate with just a couple of holes in it downtown Mm -hmm. and it's like got this really shallow and then you push it onto the Play-Doh. What's going to happen is it's going to push the Play-Doh out – which is horizontal sprawl just Mm -hmm. all the way out sprawling, sprawling suburbs. And then in the city center, you're going to get these little towers of Plato, just like just extruding out as high as they can go. Right. So you're getting horizontal and vertical sprawl rather than, you know, like reasonably tall buildings, but not massively tall. And then, a city that's relatively fairly compact, which means it's more walkable. It takes less time to commute, which means it takes less gasoline, which means it's more environmentally friendly, mm-hmm. which means you're closer to your friends. So you're less depressed when you're a kid and you need your mom to drive you 30 minutes to an hour and a half every time you want to just like play. You know, is, is that kind of the argument that you're making about horizontal and vertical sprawl?
1: Yeah, exactly, and it actually sort of guides back to the the topic of gentrification as well, which is that the only projects that kind of manage to squeeze through the the, the holes, um, in the Play-Doh example, are are sort of going to be targeted at the the luxury end of the market, right? Because if you're only allowed to build in a few locations, well, you're going to want to sell to the the really high, you know, high-income, high-value people. Um, Uh, value in terms of what they're willing to pay. Um, So, you know, I think that in many cases, it's, it's because of our strict land use regulation that the only types of things that get built when you upzone are... You know what they call luxury luxury apartments, um, but I think if we had a system with a lot less regulation and a lot more actual competition in terms of what people were building through you know land value taxes um, uh, impact on 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 supply, um, you would get a much more diverse range of of, of housing being built in different neighbourhoods. Um, you would want to be targeting different segments of that market a lot more, in the same way that we see you know um, in like a market for cars, right? You don't just build luxury cars. Um, Yeah, So I think by dealing by the sort of anti-competitive aspects of both land speculation and land use regulation, um, we can get a much more diverse uh, type of housing supplied to different types of people in different places.
2: Okay. So one more thing I want to ask about, and then we'll move on to the conclusion Mm -hmm. is, um, first of all, I want to flag that we read your thesis and we were really impressed with your work. So uh, just to kind of disclose for the audience here, we're actually working with Stephen Hoskins on a grant project that Will and I uh, wrote together, which was, um, you know, I wrote that series on Astral Codex 10 about Georgism. We later got a grant from Astral Codex 10 to do land value assessments. And um, we liked your work so much that we 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 want, we're, we're actively collaborating with you right now. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your work on this assessment project and um, what its goals are and how it links in with all of the ideas you've just talked about today?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, one of the big critiques that we get uh, as Georgists is um, you can't value the land. You can't value land value uh, separately from the buildings. Um, when you buy a property, it's a house and it's the land underneath it, and um, you know it's a practical argument. Oh, we can never do Georgism. Um, oh, that's unfortunate because we 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 can't accurately value the land. Um, uh, so. I have never actually found that argument very interesting because in all of New Zealand and all of Australia, we have separately valued land and improvements for the better part of the last century, um, and uh, nobody complains about it. It's not a big deal. Um, uh, you know, there's there's a company that gets paid by municipalities to do it, and um, homeowners know what their what their taxes are and and are fine with it. Um, e- so the modelling, you know, has has been done in places and, and is satisfying. But in, in the US, I think you have a, a really um, mismatched kind of system of land use regulation. It's basically done at the municipality level um, in every different city. And you, even your metropolitan areas are, are fractured into lots of different cities. Um, and so, yeah, the, in terms of getting standardised property assessments, um, it's not been done very well. And... Um, because it's property tax, it's taxing both the house and the land underneath it. Um, I think people, you know, really dislike being taxed for their family home. Um, So they also kind of have this real gut kind of feeling against property taxation. Um, So I think that, what you know, what we're doing um, is to take the land valuation um, methodologies that you know exist in the economic literature, in the valuation literature, and and are applied in in several countries as well, and um, putting them to work on models that we're going to you know make open source. The methodology will be really available to people. Um, there'll be different models you know side by side, so people can see you know that the values aren't that different, and that separately value both the land and the building portion of a property. Um, uh, yeah, using a real combination of, of sort of economic and, and valuers and, and deep learning um, AI techniques um uh, to just show that it can be done separately, you don't always need to have a ton of vacant land sales to get really, you know, safe estimates of the land value. Um, and indeed, the, the land value like moves quite smoothly over space, right? Because location is not changing that much as you move from property to property, um, and that most of the like real crazy vari- variation is in the house and the building. Um, and that's actually the one that's really hard to assess um, because it, you know, they depreciate, they have different typologies, and um, you know different ages. And, and, and it's quite hard to observe the interior state of a lot of uh, dwellings. But the land value portion, I'm convinced can be valued, you know, very easily. And, and um, once in place, I don't think the public will have a, have a problem with it.
2: So it's interesting, because like the standard way to value land and building separately is what's called the cost approach, where you take it's like, okay, we know the whole parcel sold for x. So let's go punch all of the characteristics of the building into what effectively is a Kelly blue book, but for buildings instead of cars and out pops a value. Okay. It's 15 years old, apply depreciation. That's the cost to build the house minus depreciation. Subtract that from X, the total sell price of the parcel that's the land value. And you're saying we should do the opposite, that it's easier to look at all the land characteristics and the patterns of of people's willingness to buy. Oh, you're willing to pay $2 million for this property. And right next to it is one that you've paid $2.3 million. The land characteristics are the same, but there's a little building on this one. You know, you think it's easier to basically use your model to basically predict the land prices. And if you want to get the building, you subtract the land price that your model has guessed directly to get... The building as a residual, rather than the opposite.
1: Yeah, and the the particular problem with the cost approach um, is that in the case where you have a, a a land parcel with, let's say, a standalone house on it, which is the case in a lot of, of America, um, but you know, if that if that property was upzoned and sort of was was taxed in a way that nudged it to be developed in the most optimal way, um, you would actually build something completely different. Um, what happens with those properties is that the 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 value of the house is actually not that important when you're buying it. Um, the market value of the property is way more tied to like what you could feasibly put on there, um, you know, if you redeveloped. Uh, so we talked right. about this with the profit approach, right? Like when you rezone a standalone house, it it zoops up in in, in value instantly. Um, the cost approach doesn't capture that at all, right? Because it's, you know, from their perspective, it's like, well, you buy a piece of land and, and the house costs this much to build. That's right, what it's right. worth. So, so it's like, it, yeah. it's
2: conflating cost with price. It's conflating the cost it takes you to make something versus what someone actually will pay you for in the market. Like maybe it cost you this much to make that house 10 years ago, but the value today isn't 10 years of depreciation minus that cost, it's the market value of that building, which could be very different because maybe I want to build apartments there instead.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, uh, you know, valuation methods that account for um, what the zoning sort of allows you to build on the property um, are really, really important to reflect this idea that, you know, when you buy a property, um, a lot of what you're buying is, is, you know, the ability to develop on it at a future date or to sell it to somebody, you know, to develop at a future date. Um, and actually, like, you know, the value of the house that's there at the moment um, in places that are sort of underdeveloped relative to the market is is not that not that important because it's quite cheap to demolish. Um, and what you're really interested in is like how profitable would be the thing that you'd like to redevelop on there in a, in a really you know competitive and efficient housing market.
2: OK, well, we've gone quite long, so let, let's wrap it up now. If you could summarize your key points and then kind of wrap a bow on with any kind of concluding remark that you really think is necessary to tie it all together.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, I think to put a bow on the gentrification conversation, um, I'll just say that, you know, we do need to be putting policies in place to um, enable its low-income people and its tenants who sort of don't have any mechanism to protect themselves against rising land rents in a place. Um, we need to have some policies in place to smooth that transition for them, enable them to enjoy the benefits of that location as it changes, um, and and yeah, so that they're not sort of re- disoriented by this really rapid change in um, in the nature of their neighbourhood, so I think there is a role for some rent stabilization type of policies to, you know, prevent, you know, massive increases in rent from being used to push people out. Public housing can do really well for that. Um, uh, housing vouchers are really useful for, you know, the, the poorer tenanted segment of the population to be able to afford these desirable locations, and then all sorts of stuff around, you know, providing legal aid to tenants. Um, uh, uh, having a, a register of landlords that are kind of engaging in in, in dodgy practices. Um, there's right to return, which says, you know, if you get pushed out, so your property is gonna to, to be redeveloped, um, you get first bi- first dibs on, you know, the next properties there, or you have to get paid out to to leave. Those are, are really important. And I think that um that, that that the left urbanists are right about a lot of that and that um Georgists and YIMBYs should pair up with them to 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 be helping with those anti-displacement efforts as well. Um, did you want to say something about that before I move to the Indian? Yeah, well, no,
2: it's just just kind of funny, like thinking about like some of these land policy things, like right of return is like pretty ancient. Like you find it in the old Testament, you know, it's, um, there's a form of it in Norwegian Viking era law. It's the oldest law in Norway, the right of Uldo, which is, is like basically a way to keep land out of the hands of foreign invaders over the course of a a thousand years. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and things like that. So so, it's interesting that like some of these these like land policy ideas actually go 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 quite a long way back. Um, and then yeah. like the right to roam. Yeah, right, I was gonna say, which, which 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 is like which which some countries have more than others. Like Norway, you're allowed to travel across uh uncultivated land. You know, this kind of notion that like the earth really, in a sense, mm-hmm. belongs to all of us.
1: Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. Um, uh, and so that actually feeds really nicely into the the, the George's perspectives, right? Which is that I think that um, in a lot of our cultures for, for you know, centuries or, or thousands of years, we have intuitively understood that land is, um, you know, given to us by nature, um, that we all have a shared interest in, um, in the value that that land creates. Um, and so, the Georgist prescription of, you know, making sure that that land value gets enjoyed by everyone in society through land value taxation or, or windfall ga- um, capture uh, is is really important. And I think um, fits with what a lot of people would intuitively understand if we kind of hadn't done this rentier capitalist approach to private home ownership over the last century.
2: Okay. So basically your thesis is the Yimbi's and the Georgists should be friends and that Yimbyism is complete without Georgism and Georgism is incomplete without Yimbyism. So, um, Stephen, where can people find you? Um, read more about what you're doing. Um, follow you online. Just, just be more familiar with your work.
1: Yeah. So, um, I am on Twitter at uh, georgiststeve, um, and uh, you'll find my profile with the the cringy laser eyes on there. Um, I write for a georgist substack called uh, Progress and Poverty Substack or P P Substack. Um, Google will get you to that. Um, I am involved with uh, with your project with uh, landisabigdeal.com uh, and uh, we're going to be you know publishing materials as we develop our models there. Um, and uh, through my Twitter account, they can also find my um, my sort of notion homepage where I have a collection of um, notes from urbanist books, um, collections of kind of research ideas that I think that georgists um, should be pursuing, um, and uh, and a collection. of of writings as well.
2: Great. Well, thank you so much, Steve. And we'll we'll include links to all that stuff, you know, in all the places that we post this podcast.
1: I really want to emphasize, you know, that I I, I think that all of us interested in urban issues um, should be allying with each other and the left urbanists and the Yimbys and the Georgists, I think, should all be propping up each other's policy approaches um, uh, to push for efficient and equitable housing markets um, as soon as we can get it and, and to push back against the sort of the rentier capitalist landowning class.
2: Thanks for coming on. I think it has been a really great conversation, really wide ranging and, and really in depth.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Lars.
0: Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.